Good evening. You're very, very welcome to the Royal Society uh, tonight. And it's such a pleasure um, to see so many Wolfsonians, current and past Wolfsonians, some of whom have come from quite a long way um, today. I've just had the great excitement of hearing about Robin Gandhi's cooking um, which is a, it surprised me because I think of Robin Gandhi as a building. You know, I don't think it, I, it's when you come generations later. I don't think of him as a wonderful mathematician and a cook. So tonight is full of revelations, and there are more to come. Um, it's particularly nice for us to be at the at the Royal Society, and we're we're especially grateful to Julie Maxton um, for for helping us fix this up, and to all our home team: uh, Bill Connor, Katie Watson, Jan Scriven, and Anna, who's now gone on to other things, for for helping us uh, and and setting this all up. Um, you will all know the history of the college, that we were founded by Isar in the 1960s um, primarily to be a home for the natural sciences. Um, and you know that we have diversified a great deal uh, since then. We have an enormous range uh, of, of scholarship and, and of study, studies from Assyriology to world literatures. Uh, but the emphasis on science has been kept very high uh, in Wolfson. Um, so they were really chancing their arm when they appointed a literary biographer as president. Um, we had a wonderful Haldane lecture this year recently by Sir Paul Nurse of this, um, this very institution, which is another very good reason to be here. Um, and we're extremely rich in scientists, distinguished scientists in many fields, including earth sciences and biochemistry and medical sciences and physics and uh, psychology. There's an enormous amount of there's an enormous amount going on in Wolfson at the moment. Those of you who are here will have be part of that and have noticed it. And those of you who haven't been back to Wolfson lately are very welcome uh, to come back uh, for a visit. There's a lot of academic and intellectual and cultural uh, activity going on. There's a new auditorium being built uh, at the front of the college, uh, which is due to uh, open in, in June. Um, we have exciting future building plans. We've recently had a £5 million legacy, which is enabling us uh, to set up a whole new program of match-funded scholarships, graduate scholarships, and not least, we have a brand new kitchen. Um, and our academic cluster activities are thriving, notably in areas such as digital research, mind, brain, and behavior, which is a new cluster for us. And we have a, a series of Wolfson lectures next term on um, psychology and learning and also quantum foundations. Uh, Professor Vlatko Vedral, who has very generously agreed uh, to speak to us uh, tonight, is one of the leaders uh, of that cluster, and he brings great distinction uh, to Wolfson. Uh, he's Professor of Physics at Oxford and at the Centre for Quantum Technologies at the National University of Singapore. He was awarded the Royal Society Wolfson Research Merit Award in 2007 for his work in quantum physics. He's the author of Decoding Reality and numerous other very influential books and papers. And he is that rare and probably unreplicatable phenomenon, a physicist who can get non-physicists to understand and even enjoy what he is telling them. So please make him very welcome tonight. Thank you very much for, for this really nice introduction. Actually, you're being too kind to me. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd really talk physics to anyone who wants to listen to me. Uh, I have a two and a half hour long talk. I love talking about this. So I'll, I'll, I'll cut it down to 40 minutes, I think, or so. Um, and please feel free to interrupt and ask questions as we go along as well. Uh, this will really be a very, very uh, short intro into, into what we find fascinating in, in quantum physics, and I'll try to say a little bit about our own research towards the end of the, of the talk. The, the talk will be very superficial, you know, all style and no content. J just the usual me, I suppose. But, but I think hopefully you'll get, you'll get something uh, out of it at the end. Um, the, main, the main aspect of quantum mechanics um, um, is really uh, beautifully summarized by, by two 
catchphrases. You know, Einstein was actually the, 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 the biggest generator of catchphrases. He was the Oscar Wilde of physics in some sense. <laughs> um, and, and I think one of the phrases is, is God doesn't play dice. He kept saying, I don't believe that God plays dice with the world. And he was referring to the random aspect of quantum mechanics. And the other thing he didn't like was something he called spooky action at a distance. That's the other famous phrase. And I think I'll show you a simple experiment which really demonstrates both of these. And I'll, I'll, I'll basically explain what made Einstein nervous. And then I'll take you through some experiments that really, in fact, reinforce our belief that everything in the universe does behave in the way that Einstein disliked to some degree. We don't know if, if there is an end to quantum mechanics, so to speak. That's what's interesting and intriguing. So here is, here is something we call a, we call a beam splitter. Uh, in fact, uh, it's probably easiest to understand with photons, with particles of light, but you could put any other object into this and it's going to behave in exactly the same way. And in fact, I'll show you some real experiments. Um, that, that confirm this kind of behavior for atoms and molecules uh, that are quite large, in fact. So imagine having a single particle of light coming into, into this beam splitter here um, and putting two detectors after this. Um, basically, the, the, the beam splitter is just a um, half-reflecting, half-transmitting mirror, just like your sunglasses. So half of the photons would go through um, and, and, and register a click here, and the other half would bounce off in this detector. Now, what's intriguing, and what Einstein, that's, that's the God doesn't play dice uh, uh, complaint. What Einstein didn't like is that quantum physics doesn't give us any predictions as to which of the detectors will click when we do this experiment. So we know in the long run, half of the times uh, detector one will click and, and, and the other half detector two. But at any specific instant, when we fire a photon, we have no idea which of the two detectors will click. And as far as we understand, there is no underlying deterministic uh, causal explanation for this. And this was very disturbing for someone who basically came from the classical physics direction where everything is nice and deterministic. So this is a complete breakaway from causality. Um, interestingly enough, uh, this is one of the... So uh, if you want to make real profit... Uh, on this kind of behavior, you offer a random number generator to casinos of Las Vegas. And I think this is one of the most profitable applications of quantum mechanics. So, so God might not play dice, but of course we, we do. And, and, if you, and if you want something random, then I think this is as random as it gets. Now, the second aspect of quantum mechanics, which almost contradicts the first now, similarly disturbing in some sense if you come with the classical intuition is that if you didn't detect imagine removing these two detectors and putting these two blue uh, mirrors which reflect light back and then you insert another, another beam splitter exactly the same as the first one and then you ask someone to make a prediction so basically I've spent something like three minutes arguing that this is the most random thing in the universe. And all I'm doing now is I'm introducing another random thing, equally random. So two random things have got to be at least as random as each of these two. So basically, every time you fire a photon uh, in this experiment, in the experiment B, you would still expect detector 1 and detector 2 to click half of the times. And what's really amazing is that every time you do this experiment, it suddenly becomes 100% deterministic. Namely, only detector one clicks, and detector two never clicks uh, when you do something like that. So how can that be? Uh, that's, that's really bizarre. Um, you know, it's a little bit like, like someone saying, I'm going to toss a coin, would you like to bet? And you say, oh, come on, I'm not going to waste my money on that. It's a random thing. And then you say, okay, but I'm going to toss two coins now. And imagine the other person saying, oh, yeah, now I can bet. I know exactly what the outcome will be. That's the quantum analog of this game. And it's the, the, you, here you should really bet, because it's deterministically detector one. And that's called interference. And the only way we can explain that, and like I said, as far as we know, all objects in the universe interfere in exactly the same way. The photon is maybe the easiest to understand. 
But everything else, including us, is, to some degree, should actually exhibit this property. So if you ask yourself, does the photon take part one or part two? Does it go after the beam splitter to the left or to the right? The only way we can explain this is that it really takes both of these parts at the same time. And this is this uh, notion of a superposition. Um, and, and, and basically, this is this, is this aspect that, that Einstein really disliked. What he disliked, in fact, why spooky action, you might ask. Why is this spooky? Okay, so part A is God doesn't play dice. Part B is spooky because these arms of the interferometer could be huge. You have a phenomenon called gravitational lensing where light takes both of the paths around the a massive object like a black hole. That's how we detect black holes in a way. So you have a huge interferometer, intergalactic interferometer, and now you are asked to accept that the photon really goes both ways at the same time. And what's spooky is that if you were to detect the presence of a photon in one of these arms, you would immediately know that there is no photon in the other arm. So this is this action at the distance that goes across the whole universe, if you like, and doesn't even care about space and time. How can that be? And I think this really disturbed Einstein. Um, like I said, now we have huge experimental evidence that the universe really is like this. So, you know, part A and part B are what we would call axioms of quantum mechanics. So don't ask me to explain this. That's how we physicists usually hide behind our kind of lack of understanding. So if you tell me why is it like this, I'll say that's a postulate of quantum mechanics. That's it. Sorry. Okay? It really is like that. Maybe there is something deeper. Of course, this led to endless debates. So God doesn't play dice was, was from one of these debates between um, Einstein and, and Niels Bohr. This is in the house of Paul uh, Enfest. And, and Einstein was one of those um, realists sticking to the classical picture, if you like. And he kept saying, the world should be out there independently of our measurements. But you could already see from the previous experiment that the photon behaves very differently if I measure it or if I choose to interfere these two possibilities and postpone my measurement. So it seems that we really affect reality in a, in a fundamental way. And I think this was disturbing to someone who is a realist at heart. Now, Bohr was, Bohr was very pragmatic. I mean, maybe he's someone... I mean, he was very complex, so it's very difficult really to narrow him down and, and place him in one particular philosophical category. You could call him an instrumentalist or a pragmatist or whatever else you'd like. He would even make statements like, there is no such thing as a quantum world. All we want is some kind of description that's going to work in practice. It's going to tell us what's going to happen, but we don't really know what's going on underneath there. Once you take that position, then it's clear that you are not really disturbed by quantum mechanics because it's just an instrument to make the best possible predictions. But I think this is probably unsatisfactory to most physicists, uh, this view. And all of us are somewhere in between, I suppose, these, these two extremes. Um, Along came Schrodinger. That was probably the biggest, the biggest change to this discussion back and forth. And, and, and what he said, so traditionally you talk about classical physics that describes large and slow objects. And quantum physics was then introduced to, to describe small objects. Of course, relativity is the, is the other theory that describes fast objects. But now we're talking about large versus, versus small. And Schrodinger said the main difference is not really in size, the difference seems to be that, that quantum physics allows for a kind of correlation that he called entanglement. Uh, Schrodinger was bilingual, incidentally, and there is a lively uh, discussion among historians whether he came first with the German word, Verschrankung, or the English one. He wrote almost simultaneously two papers, one in English and one in German. And, and it's not clear. So this is the kind of stuff that entertains historians. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I hope I'm not offending anyone. No. Here's the famous Verschrankung paper, if you like, um, up there. And, and um, his main point was the following. He said, this is really a reply to Niels Bohr to some degree. And it says, you can't quite say that small objects are, are weird, and that's the way it is. It's inconsequential, because we still have the maths to, to understand it. Because small objects, of course, um, 
can interact with larger objects. After all, large objects like us are made up of lots of small objects, atoms interacting with light. So if you believe that atoms and light behave in the weird way, then surely a larger object should also, as a consequence, behave in a weird way. And this, of course, leads to the famous Schrodinger's cat paradox at the time, I suppose. So here, here is what my students do when I send them to Lazouche Winter School. Um, this is my PhD students. They, they, they waste taxpayers' money, so to speak. <laughs> here is the dead cat. Um, maybe this is not the place to admit anything like this. Anyway, uh, here is the dead Schrodinger cat. So Schrodinger said, imagine you have one of those quantum events that can be in two states at the same time. The atom emits a photon, and at the same time it doesn't emit a photon. And imagine in the same room, under the same experiment, you have a bot, bot, very fragile bottle that can be broken by this photo, photon, if you like, and which contains poison. And the cat that's also within this same uh, experimental kind of uh, setting then gets affected by that and dies. But we know at the same time there is a probability that the atom doesn't decay, the bottle is fine, it's intact, and the cat is happy and alive. Quantum mechanics, if you believe that it applies to the whole experiment, would suggest that cats or any other objects should be really dead and alive at the same time. And he thought, surely this is a contradiction. You know, we can't have that in the real world. And of course, I don't know the answer to that. It's interesting to go in that direction, and I'll show you how far we've gone. I'm actually happy with dead and alive cats, and I think that's going to be confirmed to basically a better and better degree in some sense. I mean, it's, you know, we are very... Un yes? As you integrate your event over time, clearly this is a you know, realist, realistic sort of possibility, isn't it? Yes, you are right. I mean, it, it really depends. I think if you want to verify something like this, you'd have to be able to control complex systems. And in fact, verifying this almost amounts to reversing the whole experiment, you know, making the cat dead and alive, and then undoing the whole op operation, which sounds as difficult as, as, as the first one. And then depending on the outcome, if you like, you could confirm one possibility or the other. Um, we, we don't have experiments with anything as complicated as this, but we can do this with one billion atoms cooled down to a very cold uh, temperature, roughly a nanokelvin. And every physicist will say, if I can split billion atoms, then why not 10 to the power of 23 atoms? So, you know, I don't think, we, you know, lots of physicists would say nothing weird will happen between these two extremes. But we don't know. It's still a beautiful question, of course, uh, and open to, to experiments. And then you can push this, you know, Vigna's friend kind of logic. You can push this and say, well, why stop at the cat? You know, there is a guy um, conducting the experiment who looks, who looks at the computer screen and if he sees a dead cat, he's, he's, he's very sad, or vice versa. I don't know if he likes the cat or not. And if he sees a live cat, he's very happy. I love cats, by the way. I'd be doing this with dogs. So I'm a cat person. Always, always makes me nervous that, uh, that, that, that anything like that. Anyhow, here is the reality now, how far we've gone. And the, already this, you know, this group uh, sits in Vienna. Um, uh, the, the leader is called Marcus Arndt. And the guy just tries to interfere larger and larger objects just to see if there is any limit to, 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 how, to how quantum something can be and how big it can be at the same time, if you like. This was the first experiment. They had six theoretical physicists sitting in the lab prior to the experiment doing calculations saying this will never work. There were kind of su superficial arguments as well as deep arguments why they're never going to see this molecule, a buckyball, the famous buckyball, uh, in two different states at the same time. Um, it's, it has a very small wavelength. That would be the kind of quantum jargon to talk about it. And this wavelength is much smaller than the size of that. So the diameter of this is, is, is basically a billionth of a meter. And once the wavelength which tells you about the quantum properties is much smaller than that, everyone would say this ought to behave classically. It's not going to behave quantumly. This is almost your lecture number one, first course in quantum physics that you would receive if you stu studied physics as an undergraduate. However, they did the experiment. So they basically generated these buckyballs. 
from this source. On top of it, by the way, they were, they were very hot as well. Okay? They were not just massive, but they were hot. And these are the two limits, 900 Kelvin. These are the two limits that we think of as classical limits. If something becomes too noisy, it's bound to disrupt quantumness. It didn't in this case. So they first collimate the beam, and this is what the first slit does, and the second, and then they have a diffraction grating, and then they register the pattern uh, here at the end of the whole experiment. So this is an old experiment, so to speak, more than 10 years now, 15 years almost. Um, and, and what they registered is a kind of interference pattern that you see in the top picture here. It behaves very much like a wave. And the only way you can explain this pattern is by assuming that the buckyball, they fire one buckyball at a time, by the way. They don't interfere with one another. It's really one molecule at a time. The only way you can explain a pattern like this, and I guess you have to just trust me on that, and it just already looks like waves of some sort from our experience, but the only way you can, you can, you can explain this is by assuming that the buckyball goes through all of the slits simultaneously. If you knew which slit the buckyball went through, and they did that experiment as well, you would get the bottom picture. They would all bunch around one spatial location. So this is all in microns. It's very, it's very small. You can't see it with the naked eye. You have to amplify this picture. But basically, it's clear that buckyballs interfere. And that's already amazing. Here is something that looks huge for an atomic physicist. It's got, it's got 60 uh, carbon atoms, and it still behaves like a wave. It behaves like a photon, if you like. You'd get exactly the same picture if you sent light through this diffraction. Gratings. Okay, another experiment. I'm only showing you this. Um, uh, this was an earlier experiment, actually, in 1991. I'm only showing you this because I've got real data from this experiment. So the same experiment, but with something smaller, helium atoms, so maybe not as, as impressive as the previous one. They sent them through a single slit, just like the previous experiment, double slit, and the question is which of the two slits do they go through? And, of course, the answer is they go through both slits. Let me show you the data. So here is something. These, these very tiny green dots are where the atoms, the helium atoms, fall onto this uh, plate, and you register a click, if you like, there. And if you wait for some five minutes and, and four seconds there, you will get roughly this many uh, helium atoms. Here is after 50 minutes and 40. So you wait for the interference pattern to build up. By the way, it still looks possibly classical and random in some sense. But round about now, one hour and 41 minutes, quite a long experiment in some sense, you, you start to see fringes and you start to see darker areas where more atoms, more of these atoms fall and lighter areas where fewer of them. And now it's really starting to look like a wave, okay? Water wave, light wave, whichever wave. So they behave in exact, notice the time, 42 hours and, and 18 minutes, interesting. Um, so you get exactly the same interference fringes. Here is the world record. The world record is something that's three times as large as, as the buckyball. The same group did it. So here is 108 atoms in a single um, object. This is usually how we talk about the mass in, in atomic units. So effectively, how many hydrogen atoms do I have inside this? And it's roughly 1,600 of them. What's interesting when you interfere these guys is that the interference pattern itself is now something like 1,000 times larger, and you can already see it with the naked eye. So now you are studying, because roughly, if you have a, if you, I don't have a good, good eye. I think my wife can do this, actually. If, uh, if, you, if, you, can, if you can read this, uh, it's up to 0.1 millimeter roughly what our eye can resolve. So now you really start to see the interference fringes from, from these molecules. I think this is amazing. You're starting to see superpositions, if you know what I mean. Um, so seeing is believing, you know? So, you know, do, do you think Schrodinger's cat is not going to be possible one day still? So that's the question. Where do we stop, really? Of course, what these guys want to do, and I really love that idea, is, so, you know, we've, we've done it with electrons, we've done it with neutrons, we've done interference with atoms, now there are these Fullerene experiments. Of course, what you want to do is, is take organic molecules and move towards living systems. 
because that could be the last obstacle. There are some people who believe that life somehow destroys quantumness and quantum so it can't be that a bacterium is going to also be in a superposition. So I'd love to see these guys shoot bacteria. I think that's one of the proposals <laughs> through, through these slits and just get exactly the same interference fringes. I'd love to see the response of, of, of any of those philosophers who disbelieve quantum mechanics at that point. But there are, there are big, uh, big physicists, so to speak, uh, distinguished people who actually do this, believe that this will happen. And there are all sorts of models that are, are just out of fairness. Uh, I want to show them to you that, that there are other models which say beyond certain size, various environmental influences. Probably the most prominent one would be Penrose's gravitational cause. So gravity starts to interfere with larger and larger objects, and it would never allow anything like that. Okay, so, so let's see how far we can go, because now it becomes really interesting and, and somewhat surprising. So here is the real Schrodinger's cat, you know? Someone shooting cats through um, a single slit, and then, uh, now of course, this is not, this, I'm just trying to shock you, I suppose. Um, of course, this is not what you have in mind when you think about living system exploiting superpositions and entanglement. Um, what we are really interested in, and, and, and there, is a, there is a few of us here present as well, is whether living systems could support quantum mechanics in some of the processes that are relevant for life. You know, it's hard to imagine that, that you could put someone like me in, in two states, you know, being here and being over there at the same time. And, and it's hard because of the properties that I mentioned that are, that are key in destroying quantum mechanics. So I am massive, um, physics, uh, physics jargon so far, strictly speaking, and I'm hot as well. And being massive, being, being massive and hot kills you because they, it's all about information leaking from the system and telling you where the system really is. Each of my atoms emits photons, and the hotter I am, the more photons are emitted. So there is a gazillion of these photons flying towards you, and you keep registering and collapsing me, so to speak, to one single location. That's why you see me here. If you could prevent me from radiating all over the place, so, of course, that's why we cool atoms down to almost absolute zero and all of these things. And even then we work with up to billion atoms, not as many as, as us. So all of these things go against us. But, of course, it's still possible that a small part of us is protected somewhere there in cells, um, and it's still capable of, of some kind of quantum behavior, even if the whole of me is very difficult to kind of control in, in the quantum way. So it's not going to be like this. Don't worry. I'll show you something, something more interesting. So fundamentally, this is almost like a summary of the first part, that, that if you have these two quantum objects that are really entangled, so this is one quantum object that in a way has a property. This would be like an electron that's spinning in some direction. And, and this other, sorry I'm using our notation, this is our beloved Dirac notation, and, and we just all love it. I can't resist putting it out there. And this just represents another electron which is spinning in the, in the other direction. What entangled states allow you is to have these electrons really correlated to the degree that if one, if one spins in one direction, the other one is opposite, and vice versa. And this is true for all directions, not just up and down, but left and right and so on. And this is what Einstein found spooky. I'm just restating the spooky action. Imagine these two electrons are at different ends of the universe. And now I choose to measure one of them, and I see that it's up. Then I know immediately the other guy at the other end of the universe is down. Okay? Now, I know what you will say, and this was John, John's bell, you know, John Bell was trying to explain how weird this is. John Bell would say, imagine, imagine that the queen visits Australia, and she happens to die, unfortunately. Now, Charles immediately becomes the king. Spooky action at the distance. There is the, there is the queen dying in Australia, Charles becoming the king, because of, of course, some, some medieval rule that says that this is the, uh, the, the way. There's nothing weird about this correlation. It's a classical correlation. And we know that classical objects are correlated in this. Identical twins are genetically correlated. What's really spooky here is that you can decide to measure this electron whichever way you like, not just up and down, and the other one will automatically assume the opposite. 
to that. So how does the other guy know which property I'm going to measure on the first electron? So that's the spooky part, really. And that's the way it is. We don't, again, it's an, it's an axiom of quantum mechanics. I don't have an answer to that. But it really suggests that the world ultimately is random, and the properties of objects are not determined until we measure them. So I can't say there is an atom here unless I really put a detector and get a click. It's not a definitive feature of this universe. And this table looks so solid, but somehow under quantum mechanics, the whole thing becomes a little bit like a cloud of probability. And that's really an, an interesting picture out there. Now, of course, we have lots of questions. I love this quote from Feynman. It just... Um, It's great. I just want to tell you that that's the spirit of, of, of what we are all about, and it's really just for fun. You know, I, I, we are, we're, most of us are driven by this, although, of course, there may be some applications. And in fact, I'm entering the domain of applications, but I'd like you to keep Feynman's uh, quote in mind as we, as we go along. Um, can really entanglement exist in large objects and at large, large temperatures? And, and of course, you know, th th there are many. This, this is becoming a lively field now. And recently, there was an experiment that was reported in Nature where they took a piece of salt. Um, so this is almost, th th this was a few milligrams of salt. So it's a chunk of salt that you can almost see with, with, with your eye. It's so big for an atomic physicist, you can almost see it. Um, and what they did is they applied a magnetic field uh, to try to plot the behavior of, of each of these atoms, which you can think of as, as little magnets that align with the external magnetic field. And what they showed is that unless you assume that the, that the atoms are in a large entangled state, you can never explain the response uh, of this sample to the magnetic field. So, you know, they plotted the experimental data, then they took entanglement away, and they showed basically that that the same behavior can never be recovered. And now we are talking really about 10 to 20 atoms in this piece of salt being in some big entangled state. Um, I think the temperatures are very low in this experiment, something like a millikelvin. But still, an impressive result that even for large chunks of matter, you actually have no other choice but to assume that they exist in this very weird, uh, spooky, if you like, Einstein's language state. And of course, the first question then is, if, if you can show that for, for a piece of salt, what about, what, about, uh, what about chemistry and biology? What about even more complicated, uh, complicated systems? Um, now, of course, um, we physicists, uh, I, have to, I have to say a few words about the cultural differences there. We, most of us physicists believe that, that chemistry is just, of course, an application of quantum physics. Uh, and biology is just... just chemistry applied, if you like, organic chemistry. So, so in a way, if you follow this reductionistic logic, I'm very fond of that myself, uh, then, then you, you should be able to reduce everything to quantum mechanics, even explaining life, actually, at some stage. It would be weird if quantum mechanics didn't feature there. Of course, this is hotly debated, and there are many people who believe that this is not the right way to think about it. Um, so here is just a brief summary of this. I don't think you, you really need to hear about it. Now, here is, here is the, the best reductionist of all time. I love, I love this guy, and I love his statement. Uh, here is what he has to say. Science is either physics or stamp collecting. Um, this is how most physicists feel. I understand biologists actually feel like that as well. They're very frequently frustrated and envious of our laws, which, which in, in biology are just so difficult. You can't be as precise as as a physicist can. Um, uh, ironically, by the way, he's a Nobel laureate in chemistry. Because once you work on atomic physics, it's neither here nor there. He apparently keep, kept the Nobel Prize in, in his toilet. Okay? He was not really proud of that at all. <laughs> this is Ernst Rutherford, of course, the guy who discovered the atomic structure of matter. On the other side, so we physicists, of course, have dissidents as well, I suppose. I actually don't know who's dissident in this case. It could be the other way around. I'm not sure how people fear. But here is, here is Anderson, the guy who invented condensed matter physics, so to speak. Um, he wrote an, a highly influential article saying more is different. Once you encounter a complex system, you get behavior that's so different that you will never be able to reduce it. Uh, to the microscopic laws of physics. And there are people who even claim that you can prove this using, using some arguments from computability. So it's a very, it's a very interesting, um, actually, 
um, and lively debate there between those of us who feel that the same methods of physics, um, and we've done well for the last 350 years, I suppose just the age of this uh, institution here, you know, why should we give up the re reductionistic logic when it's worked so, so well so far? But of course there are people who feel that maybe it's not worked uh, that well and maybe it really will ultimately never explain this complex, complex phenomenon. Again, Schrodinger was the guy who, who came in um, at the right time and, and after his entanglement debate, he switched to, to doing biology. And he actually wrote one of the most influential books at that time called What is Life? This convinced lots of physicists to go into biology, in fact. Some of them uh, discovered the DNA and so on. So all of these fancy techniques that physicists developed up to that time, crystallography, for example, became then applied to, to biology. And this is something that we'd like to do now with quantum physics. The, I think the time is right. We have the technology. We can zoom in. Uh, over very short periods of time and very, very small scales, and I think we should be asking similar questions there. But Schrodinger, interestingly, believed that the classical laws of physics, or at least this is how people interpret this statement, maybe you should be even more adventurous, um, but, but I think what he really meant there is that the laws of classical physics are incapable, really, of, of explaining biological behavior. And he says here, mysteriously, uh, it's likely to involve other laws of physics. So hitherto, unknown. So it's not even clear. He might have been thinking even beyond quantum mechanics. The biology might force us to even go beyond that. I mean, who knows? It would be exciting to me because quantum physics has been depressingly accurate over the last 100 years. I'd love to have some deviations. Okay, that's when we go in and, of course, write down new laws and, and, and get all the fortune and glory and so on. But this has been depressingly good over 110 years or so. Um, now, here is the evidence we have from biology, and this is really the last part, maybe last, uh, last 10 minutes or so. Um, we have some evidence that photosynthesis relies on quantum superpositions. And very briefly, I don't want to bore you too much, um, inside, inside plants um, and inside uh, some bacteria as well, um, there, are, there are basically complex molecules whose job is to absorb radiation and take it from the surface level, if you like, down to the reaction center, where a chemical cycle is triggered off that gives energy uh, to plants. A little bit like the ATP cycle in the mitochondria of humans. I guess that would be the, the kind of animal equivalent of this kind of stuff. But of course, plants rely on, on the sun. And, and what's interesting is that in some of these experiments, people actually measured that the efficiency of converting radiation from this site down to the reaction center is almost a unity. So there's almost a 100% efficiency, almost, almost violates the, 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 the second law of thermodynamics in a way, how efficient this is. So it's, it goes basically between 95 and 99% efficiency. And classical physics would suggest that this is impossible because the way classical physics explains the propagation of light is that it randomly hops from one of these sites to the next and then next and so on. And random hopping simply means, this is called drunkard's walk sometimes, it simply means you have an equal chance to go forward as well as backward. And what this means is that most of the time you get stuck somewhere in the middle and you never really make it to the place where you want to make it to with any high probability, okay? However, if you're a quantum drunkard, okay, if you could do pub crawling, so to speak, in a quantum mechanical way, then you could actually have all the drinks from all these sites and, and arrive home safely very quickly. That's what I tell Ivona, I think, uh, after Friday nights. Anyhow, plants can do it. Classical physics can't explain the efficiency. We think the only way to model this is quantum mechanically. And there are models now and there are uh, experiments along those lines. So, so probably the first one to, to mention are the experiments of, of, of a Brit, actually, Graham Fleming, who, who's, who's lived in California for a long time. And I think the experiments were published in Nature uh, a few years back, and they really triggered a, a whole kind of... Uh, further activity of trying to model this. The other one that I want to briefly mention, and this is something we worked on as well, um, so I call this Schrodinger's 
plants and Schrodinger's birds, you know, in, 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 in analogy with the cat, I suppose. And this is this, is this famous European robin uh, that makes a huge journey from the northern European uh, plains down to Africa and then back, of course, um, every six months. And the question has always, of course, intrigued biologists, how do animals do that? How do they know how to find they, their direction? And, of course, one of the rare permanent things you can find on our planet is, is the magnetic field, Earth's magnetic field. Um, and it's obvious that they should rely on that. But what's interesting is that the first guess is they have a compass. They have a substance that aligns itself, just like the magnets I showed you in the, in the salt experiment. So they have some substance somewhere in their bodies which aligns them, uh, with whose molecules, if you like, align with the magnetic field, and that's how they tell that. And lots of species do that. But what was interesting with this particular species in, is that there is, a, there is a couple of German professors, I really mean a couple, a husband and wife, the sweetest physics couple that I've ever seen in my life. Um, they, they do their experiments together. I only met the husband because the wife had to stay back home to catch the European robins in January. So the husband came to my, to my uh, conference uh, and he said, oh, I'm sorry, I have to leave my w wife to catch these European robins, and then I'll go back and experiment with them. Um, these are very friendly experiments to birds, and they always emphasize that all the birds survive this, and they are released to go back home, unlike in nature where a few percent still don't make it, of course, to Africa and back. So what they did is they introduced the magnetic field. You know, they had some kind of coils, big magnets uh, around. They introduced the magnetic field, and then they observe the direction in which the birds move. And then they change the magnetic field. They exchange the north and the south. And if this was a, a kind of magnet-based uh, uh, substance, a compass, um, you, would, you would, of course, expect the birds to go in the opposite direction, but they don't. They don't care about the exchange of the north and the south. And this, is, this was the first piece of, of the puzzle. How can you explain that? Then they change the inclination of the field, just the angle that it makes with the, with the Earth's uh, surface, and then they discovered that the bird goes backwards. So you need to change the angle and not the polarity. And then again, of course, they did the polarity and the bird didn't notice that at all. So this kills the idea of compass. Then they noticed that you need light for the operation of this mechanism. Of course, compass works in the dark as well. So you don't really need any, any photons to navigate with the compass, if you like. And so on. So they plotted all of this. So here is the light-dependent behavior and so on. The only way they could explain that um, and this is still highly hypothetical, they don't even know which molecule would be responsible for that, is that in fact when light gets absorbed, the conjecture is that there is a molecule in the retina of European robin's eye, only one of the eyes, because they know when they close them that, that when one is closed the other one still functions, but not vice versa. They have an entangled pair of electrons, just like in the picture that I had. One of them gets excited, and now the entanglement starts to change with time. And depending on which entangled state you have, and that depends on the inclination of the field, that's how the field gets encoded, you will get one type of chemical output or a completely different one. And this is apparently something that that's registered by the brain of the bird. You see how hypothetical this all becomes because none of these mechanisms are really understood. But quite a lot of people are now confident that this has to do really with the entangled, and it's got to be entangled dance, of two electrons in each of these molecules inside the retina. So basically when that gets converted into chemistry, this gives to the bird a real vision of the magnetic field. And they can really superimpose that on top of the usual thing that they see to navigate them. And it's absolutely fascinating to think that genuine quantum entanglement, spooky action at a distance, is what living systems use to solve a problem like this. I think it's amazing. So we did some work, and we actually discovered, interestingly enough, that these birds, if this is the mechanism, they are good at keeping entanglement for longer than we can do it uh, artificially. That's what kind of made us slightly depressed, that, that we are not able to keep these two electrons entangled for longer than what this European robin seems, seems to be doing. So basically the question is, can we learn from that technology and import it back to us? 
And in fact, I want to do a, a, a couple of minutes of advertisement be before I conclude. This is a, a very important um, direction to us um, in, in, in Oxford, and, and, and we are lucky enough to have uh, James Martin um, funding us uh, to explore something that's highly um, adventurous and very speculative as well. You know, this is one of those directions where you'd, be, you'd, be, you'd find it difficult to convince the government to give you any money for this kind of research. It's too adventurous in some sense. They love boring proposals um, uh, to the extent that, 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 that you know, you, it's, it's super off-putting to even sit down and think about writing one. Okay, that's how I feel, and I know lots of other pe people feel like that. So I hope there will be more, more of this kind of adventurous investment. Um, so we are thinking of exploring biological systems, even hybrid systems, and then hopefully making artificial systems which are capable of mimicking this kind of bio biological behavior. So in a way, you know, if we are really trying to make a quantum computer, maybe living systems have already discovered certain aspects of this technology. It wouldn't be the first time that nature had discovered, of course, a technology before humans. In fact, it would be more surprising to see that we have a technology that nature probably uh, has not discovered before us. And so we are really thinking of, of um, putting these complex molecules into very small confinements, coupling them with light and seeing how quantum mechanical the whole behavior really is. Okay. Feynman quote, because I want to go back to Feynman, in fact, um, and talk about the big picture and what kind of, what kind of what kind of reality does quantum mechanics tell us uh, we live in? Because it's very unusual. Randomness features a lot. There is this spooky action in the distance and so on. Uh, one thing I can say, this is almost like a summary, that, that now we are really changing our mind, that quantum mechanics really does not only apply to small systems, but we actually have lots of evidence that it persists in the macroscopic domain. And I think this, is, this, this will grow um, in terms of... Um, more and more intricate experiments. Uh, we now know that living systems might be exploiting something like, uh, like these genuine quantum effects. And there are speculations, as you would guess, that maybe quantum mechanics and this genuine randomness is, is even fundamental for the existence of life. There are really some fascinating ideas there. Of course, it would be great especially for a quantum physicist to discover that life would not be possible without his own discipline. You know, I, I'd love that to happen, of course. Uh, but, then, but then, you know, I want to drive it in, in, in even a kind of in, in, in a more macroscopic direction. And, you know, why stop with, with living systems? You know, what would the universe be like if the whole universe was, was, was quantum mechanical? What kind of reality would that be? There's, of course, a lot of interest in that. And, and it's a weird reality, and I think I only have one last slide to really tell you about it. Um, I'm, I'm borrowing probably an analogy that comes from, from the great American physicist John Wheeler, who, who thought a lot about these, uh, these things. Um, he, um, and, and he would present it as a, as a kind of game between us doing experiments and nature, and it's only through this game that reality ultimately emerges. So it's one of those realities which doesn't, again, it captures the aspect that it doesn't exist independently of us. But then you can well ask yourself, if it's really random at the most fundamental level, how come any reality then in the first place? Why is there any reality? Why is it not just complete mess? And, and I do, of course, I don't have an answer to that. I'd love to have an answer to that. But the best I can illustrate it is with a game of cards. And we physicists really do play these games. The first time I played it, I was really amazed that it can work like this. But actually, you can do it yourself. Um, and and be, you, know, you, you can rest assured that everyone else in the pub will just move away when you, when you start doing stuff like that, OK? <laughs> This is my advice if it's, if it's overcrowded. Imagine a game where, where each player, you know, just the usual card game. Each player has four cards, and we sit around the table. And, you know, you get, you get basically dealt some random hand or whatever. This doesn't look that random. But, you know, four cards that are... Four, <laughs> four, I can see poker players here. Very good. Um, um, basically, this is not as random as, as, as that, but what you really want is you want four cards of the same type. So the game has to proceed until one player has four cards of the same type in, in, in their hand, and then they declare that, and that's the end of the game. That's the winner, and, 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 and then we stop or play another game. Now, there are only two rules to this game. 
Basically, when it's your turn, you can ask someone else for a card. You can ask the person next to you. You can choose anyone. You can say, do you have uh, an ace of spades, if you like. Um, and, and, but you can only ask for an ace, that's rule number one, if you already have at least one ace. So this rule is constructed to actually tell you that physics, when you ask a question of nature, you also give up a little bit of your own information. You can't interrogate nature without giving up and correlating yourself to nature. And in this way, it's exactly here. You, know, you can only ask for a card if you already have um, at least one card of the same type. So now everyone else around the table knows that you've got at least one other ace of some other kind. And then, of course, there is the, the basic honesty in the game. It, it, namely, if someone asks you for, for a card and you have it, you do have to give it up. You know, you can't cheat. I mean, this just says you, you really can't cheat. And, 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 you know, you now go around, and if you guess wrongly and someone doesn't have the card, then you give up your turn and the next person assumes the turn, and you go around the table until one person collects four cards of the same type. What has this got to do with quantum mechanics? It's the punchline of the game. And it's really amazing. And the punchline is this. You don't need cards to play the game. In fact, you don't need to agree on anything prior to the game other than the two rules. So you can sit there imagining in your head that you have a pink elephant card. So they don't even have to be the standard. You can invent whatever you like the initial cards to be. Okay? And in fact, you can even change your mind during the game, so long as you are consistent with all your previous answers, okay, as you play the game, just to maximize the chances of success. The amazing thing is that after roughly one round, one person will still end up with four cards of the same type, whatever the card. So what I'm saying is that there are no cards, and there are infinitely many possibilities. That kind of mirrors the randomness, no cards, and infinitely many possibilities mirrors the superposition at the kind of grand cosmic scale. So you can play this with your friends if you like. Just start the game, no cards at all. Imagine whatever you want to have in your head as the four cards. And ultimately, through just these two rules, four cards of the same type will emerge in one player's hands. That's amazing. So here is how reality emerges out of nothingness, in a way. I think it's the best I can do. In fact, it's the best John Wheeler could do, I suppose. None of us can do better than, than him. Um, and, and I think I'd like to stop there, and, and thank you for your attention.